0: Uh, as Pete mentioned, you could go to my website, www.robgagnon.net. Uh, as mentioned up here, I update it regularly with new materials, some uh, that's put in the print media that the publisher allows me to put on, others that I put special on my website, which will eventually will work its way into print. Uh, so, uh, and if you have any questions, either arising from today or particular issues, you'd want to know where do I deal with this issue online or in print, then you can contact my email address, which is listed up here, uh, as you see, gagnon at pts.edu. I teach at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, a professor of New Testament there with uh, primary expertise in Pauline studies and sexuality issues in scripture. All right, there's so much to talk about. I'm glad we're starting now a quarter of. I can see what I have to do between now and uh, 3.30, which is uh, not get done everything. Uh, that will be impossible, as Pete just pointed out, because you would be here about another five hours. But we'll see what we can get done in the 45 minutes. We'll hit some highlights here and there. And I'm going to start with the text in Genesis 1:26 to 28. And God said, let us make Adam, which is simply a Hebrew term for earthling, uh, created from the ground, the Adamah, a human, in our image, in accordance with our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish, the birds, the cattle, the wild animals, and over every creeping thing. And 127, the critical text here, God created the Adam, the human, in his image. In the image of God, he created it or him. You can render the Hebrew either way. Depending on whether you look at the Adam as sexually undifferentiated or not, male and female, he created them. And there's an occasion for talking about the differentiation. 128, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the birds, and every living thing. Now, one thing I want to address right away is the connection here between image of God and the creation of the human or the Adam as male and female. I would suggest that the close proximity of these two lines, back to back, would suggest that there is a connection. Now, some would argue, well, it can't be a connection here because obviously also animals are differentiated into male and female, and they are not created in God's image. That argument is true, but its application to what I'm presenting is irrelevant. Because my point is simply that the connection here is God has intersected these two with regard to humans. That is, he's made what human beings do sexually matter. Uh, For a number of years, my wife and I had a little dog Coco, a cockapoo, sweet little dog part cocker spaniel, part poodle. We love Coco. Although we did realize once, after having Coco for about 10 years, and then finally we had our first child, Karis, uh, who's a sweetie pie, now 13. Um, and my other daughter too, Eliana, now nine. There's a little plug there. But uh, once Caris once arrived at home, we suddenly realized that Coco was a dog. How about that? We thought Coco was our child. Then we found out, no, Coco is just a dog. And that was a bad day for Coco. (laughs) Poor Coco. Anyway, I digress. Coco was not very discriminating when it came to sexual practices, I found. But God really didn't hold Coco accountable for that, because Coco was not made in God's image. If I followed Coco's sexual practices, God would hold me accountable, because I am made in God's image. And that's the point here. What you do sexually impacts the image of God stamped on your being. You can either efface or enhance that image based on what you do sexually. That's the point of this text here. And to to elaborate on that a little further, some of this which we already made, again, the point being that human sexual differentiation is uniquely integrated into God's image. Okay, now a previous speaker will like this quote. This is from Nahum Sana, a Jewish scholar in the Jewish Publication Society commentary series, this one on Genesis. He's widely recognized as a premier scholar uh, in the study of Genesis. And he writes, quote, Human sexuality is of a wholly di- commenting on this text, is of a wholly different order from that of the beast. Sexual perversion is viewed as a desecration of the divine image of man. In other words, what a man does sexually will impact the image of God stamped in his being. So unlike animals, what humans do sexually could efface or enhance God's image. Now that's a very, very powerful statement about the importance of sexuality in God's larger program for humanity. And right at the heart of that is the sexual differentiation between two primary sexual counterparts, male and female. You mess with that, and you mess with the image of God. There's much more we could say about Genesis 1, but because of time limitations, I'm gonna move on to Genesis 2. And Yahweh God said, it's not good for the Adam or human to be alone. I will make for him a helper as his counterpart. The word there is conegdo. We'll talk about that in a moment. And as you know, Yahweh God formed from the ground, the Adama every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the Adam. But for the Adam there was not found a helper as his counterpart. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the human or Adam and he slept. And he took one of, literally the preposition here in Hebrews, from his sides. I noticed my translation here. Your usual translation will be ribs. I will come back to that in a moment. And he closed up its place with flesh. And Yahweh God built the side, or rib, Selah is the Hebrew word, that he had taken from the Adam into a woman. And he brought her to the Adam, or human. And the Adam said, this at last is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. To this one shall be given the name woman, Hebrew isha, For from man, ish, now this is the first introduction of the gender-specific term, man. Adam is not a gender-specific term. From man, this one was taken. In other words, he becomes an ish. As a result of the extraction, a gender-specific being. Previous to that, he can just be referred to as an Adam without specific differentiation. Therefore, a man, an Ish, shall leave his father and mother and his mother and become attached. Now, by the way, in both in Hebrew and the related Greek translation given in the Septuagint, This is also the verb that's used for gluing things together. Now, I don't want you to walk away here and say, you learned today that you're stuck with your spouse. (laughs) Prepositions here are very important. You're stuck to your spouse, (laughs) not not stuck with. Um, Stuck to, joined, united, to his woman, isha, or wife, could be rendered either way, and they, shall become one flesh. Now, you note here that I have written or the two. Interesting little note, the Hebrew text, there is no Hebrew text that has the two. The Masoretic text has not two, just they. But all the versional evidence, that is all the non-Hebrew textual evidence, from the Aramaic Targums to the Samaritan Pentateuch to the uh, 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 Greek Septuagint to the Syriac, to the Vulgate, uh, all the the non-Hebrew texts read the two. In other words, there's a developing consensus in Judaism with with the progression of time that that's implicit in the text. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the term selah that is rendered rib in your English translations. There's a little dictionary, uh, over 12 volumes, uh, of called Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, written by the premier Old Testament and Hebrew Bible scholars around the country, Jewish and Christian, and in volume 12, which talks about this term, Selah, the entry written by hans Joseph Fabry. Fabry says, if Selah does mean rib, in Genesis 221 to 22, it does so only in this one passage, that is, and not in the 36 other occurrences in the Old Testament. This semantic singularity, of course, suggests that one seek a different solution, which is what I'm going to do. What does it mean elsewhere? Well, in 2 Samuel sixteen thirteen, Selah refers to the side of a hill, and everywhere else in the Hebrew Bible, It refers to the side of various parts of sacral architecture. Whether the side of the ark, the tabernacle, or incense altar as reported in the instructions in Exodus, or the side planks and side rooms of the Solomonic temple, according to 1 Kings, or various elements of the eschatological temple portrayed in Ezekiel. Now what does that suggest? According to Fabry, I agree with Fabry at this point, um, it suggests that human beings in their sexuality are sacral architecture. God has designed them specifically by integrating sexual differentiation into their image-bearing role. It's very similar when Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's talking about sexual immorality and still discussing the case of the incestuous man in chapter five, makes the point that you are a temple of the spirit of Christ that is in you and that you've been bought with a price and you don't belong to yourself anymore but to God, so glorify God in your bodies. Well, That notion of the body in its sexuality being a temple of God is already in new shape, to some extent presented in Genesis itself by the use of this term, Selah, and nearly everywhere else in connection with sacral architecture. It's a way of underscoring the point that we made earlier with regard to Genesis 1. You mess with the significance of sexual differentiation, and you mess with something sacral and holy to God. Now I want to talk uh, more about Selah here in connection with the implication in context. That is with the discussion of extraction The remark, flesh from my flesh, that's mentioned in Genesis 2.24, though formulaic, may also suggest an extraction of flesh. The Akkadian cognate includes the flesh in the area of the ribs, and it often designates the rib cage rather than one single rib. At the very least, the image in Genesis 2.21-22 is that of an indeterminate amount of flesh and bone taken from one of the sides of the as yet undifferentiated human from which is then formed man's sacred complement. Okay, That's sort of a mouthful. We don't know how much is taken, some indeterminate amount, more than a single rib, as much as the whole side or some portion thereof, that is then removed from the Adam, from the human, and once removed, it leaves a sexually differentiated being, an Ish, a man, to form the sacred complement to that man now, the missing element, sexually speaking. Now, this is certainly later, but it's a lot earlier than our own day, from Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher from Alexandria, Egypt, in the first century makes the following points about the creation of woman, although he reads it allegorically. Still, it informs us about his understanding of the, of the image here. Love brings together and fits into one the divided halves, as it were, of a single living creature. Notice he doesn't talk about a single rib being extracted, but halves. And which side, the Greek term pleura, did he take? For we may assume that only two are indicated. Did he take the left or the right side? Talking about the creation of woman. We know it in terms of our common expression about your other half. Or men, if you know what you're doing, you'll say your better half. right? Otherwise, you still got a lot to learn. That will be another class session later, private session. You can arrange that with me individually. It won't take long, by the way. Genesis Rabbah, an early rabbinic commentary on Genesis. Rabbi Samuel bar Nachman, third century, said, when God created Adam, he created him double-faced, then he split him and made him two backs, one back on his side and one back to the other side. Selah means one of his sides, as you read, and for the other side, Selah of the tabernacle, Exodus 26. Now, he disagrees with Philo in terms of whether it's left-right, front-back, I don't really care. Um, I'm merely pointing out that some larger extraction than a single rib is suggested here, indicating the other half. Now I want to look at the term "conegdo," uh, which I've rendered as his counterpart, uh, getting for the Adam a helper as his counterpart. Yahweh God said, it's not good for the Adam to be alone, I'll make for him a helper as his counterpart, konegdo. But for the Adam, there was not found, that is among the animals, a helper as his counterpart. Now, here's how it breaks down. Ka, as, or like. The O suffix at the end. Holum, uh means his. Neged uh, means a very interesting term, neged, as a preposition. Neged means both, and about equally so, and sometimes both, uh, corresponding to. And the sense of corresponding to in the context here is the woman is similar, similar to the man in that she's a human being. As opposed to being an animal, that's the similarity expressed by neged. The difference, uh, neged also can connote equally difference, opposite. That interesting same term can mean both corresponding to and opposite, about equally so if you do a concordance search of the Hebrew Bible. So it's beautifully chosen here because the difference is, of course, the difference as regard the distinct sex extracted from the Adam. You see that? Difference within sameness. Not just sameness, the term "negate" is specifically chosen because it connotes both elements, which is why counterpart uh, is an excellent translation of it because it gets across both those points. Counterpart implies some degree of sameness because it's what the missing element is that completes one's wholeness, but by necessity it's also that missing element which makes one distinct or different or complement, which is also an equally good translation of this, counterpart or complement. Both get across both elements of the term neged in Hebrew. Let's look again at the taking from. Now, the, el- the issue of taking from is so important in this text that it's repeated four times in very short contexts. God took one of, literally one from, his sides and closed up its place. Yahweh God built the side that he had taken from the Adam. The human declares, this is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. And to this one shall be given the name Isha, woman. For from man, Ish, this one was taken. See that repeated emphasis that something has been extracted from the Adam. What is the point of all that? What is missing from the Adam now, who is now a niche, a differentiated, gender-specific being, a man, is the part that God has, built, has now built into a woman. In this context, then, one flesh clearly implies restoring the missing part of the indivisible whole. Man and woman are thus two essential complementary parts in a holistic picture of human sexuality. If there's a missing element, sexually speaking, to a man, it's a woman and to a woman, a man. To say that the missing element sexually of a man is another man, is to create the absurd image that the man is only half a man, needing to merge with another male to be a fully integrated male, but that's a lie. The one thing that a man does not bring to the table, sexually speaking, is essential femaleness. The one thing that a woman does not bring to the table, sexually speaking, is essential maleness. And homosexual persons know this, by the way, because uh, if they identify as category six on the Kinsey spectrum, exclusively homosexual, why are they not happy with, say for example, a homosexual male, a particularly gender nonconforming female, a masculinized woman. Why must it be a man, another man? Because they recognize there's something essentially male about a male that can't be replicated e- even by an extreme gender nonconforming woman. It's not another man that is the missing part or a sexual complement of a man. But a woman. That's the point of the analogy, of the storyline in Genesis 2. One flesh then does not mean merely the same family in this context, but the restoration of a sexual hold. The idea of a woman, incidentally, of being taken from an original human is important in Genesis because uh, in the other major story of the creation of woman that we find in Mesopotamia, that doesn't happen. Instead, in the story of Atrahasis, seven human males and seven human females are formed separately from a mixture of clay and the flesh and blood of a slaughtered god. There's no direct extraction from an original human, from an Adam, creating a hole, something missing, that then is complemented by that thing that is extracted. So there's some special point that's being made in Genesis 2, that does not redound generally in the ancient Near East. And by the way, there are also several texts from early Judaism that emphasize the point that woman is a part of man. Fourth Maccabees, for example, uh, the mother of the seven sons is about to be slaughtered for her faith by Antiochus. Epiphanes declares, I was a pure virgin and guarded the side or rib that had been built up from the man. The Apocalypse of Moses, Eve asked Adam to kill her so that God and his angels would no longer be angry at him with Adam then responding, why should I bring death to my side or rib, depending on how we translate it in Greek, against the image that God made? And later, Eve's death is portrayed as the time when Adam's side or rib would return to him, the missing element, sexually speaking, from the man. And also the text from Philo and the rabbis that we cited earlier about Selat meaning sign. So, what does Genesis 2 teach us? We have an image of one flesh becoming two sexes. That grounds the principle of two sexes becoming one flesh. Beautiful connection there. Marriage is viewed as a reconstitution of the divided halves. Same sex unions are then, erotic unions are precluded structurally. Homorotic unions require a different kind of creation story, the kind we find in Plato's Symposium, where we start with several original binary beings, male-male, a female-female, and a male-female, that are then, after Zeus gets angry at them, each split in half, and the one you emanate from most determines uh, which half you long for. That's a way of positing some sort of existence and creation of homosexual uh, behavior. But that's not what we have in Genesis. Nor is this an issue of misogyny about women hating. Uh, Oftentimes, scholars have argued that the opposition homosexual practice is just about opposing women. And there's no element of that here in the Genesis 2 text. Quite simply, both, and and in one, both participate in the uh, renewal and governance of creation. And there's great joy at rejoining with one's sexual half in Genesis 2. And by the way, Genesis 3.16 attributes the husband's rule to the fall, as a side note. All right, that's all we're going to do with uh, Genesis. Oh, well, we should say this too. Uh, The text does teach us about the holistic fittedness of a man-woman union. There is a deeper truth here that's being expressed within the symbolism of the storyline, namely in terms of anatomy, physiology, psychology. Uh, Man and woman are each other's sexual complements. It's not just about the plumbing, although it certainly includes the plumbing. And I've never met a homosexual male who wasn't interested in the plumbing. That's because he's male. Just as all heterosexual men are interested in the plumbing, not of another male, but of women. Uh, But, of course, it's more. It's not just about more intimacy. Uh, Sometimes people say, that's all really homosexual practices, you just want intimacy. No, it's not just about that. Sex is about more than just intimacy. I'm very intimate with my two daughters. I would die for them in a moment, okay? But if I have sex with them, I go to prison, rightfully so, okay? I'm very intimate with my family members. I'm intimate in my love and commitment to other members of the church. But if I have sex with any of these, there's a big problem. It's not just more intimacy. It's about a joining together of embodied existences which Jesus intended, and the entirety of Scripture intended, for man and a woman only. In short, it's not just about uniting a man and a woman, a male and female. The image that's presented is really about reuniting in the sense that if you have a sexual spectrum completed by the existence of two primary sexes, male and female, those two that are brought together constitute a single sexual whole. And you can't fake that through some sort of gender nonconformity. It requires the union of somebody who is essentially male and somebody who is essentially female. Now let's segue over to Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22. With a male you shall not lie, I'm translating here very literally the text from the Hebrew, lyings of a woman, that is, as lying with a woman as though lying with a woman, or as a woman lies. It is an abomination, Tovah, Leviticus 20.13, And a man who will lie with a male, literally, lying of a woman, that is, as lying with a woman, they have committed a tovah, an abomination, something detestable to God. The two of them, they shall certainly be put to death, their blood be upon them. Now some will say, well, we don't... We don't want to stone anybody anymore, capital sentencing for this, so therefore the whole commandment is irrelevant. Well, that's not really good reasoning. Um, Capital sentence also applies to incest and to adultery and to bestiality. We don't apply the capital sentence to any of those, but we don't approve the behavior either. Uh, There are good reasons for that, as we see later when we talk about Jesus and the story about the women caught in adultery, but that's for the next time. I want to move on to... Now, an argument that's often made is, it's just like a purity issue that we no longer abide by anymore, so what's the big deal? We should just get over it. It's in Leviticus, after all. What do we care about anything written in Leviticus? Well, do remember that according to Jesus, the second greatest love commandment, Leviticus 19.18, is right between the two chapters on sex laws, okay? So, don't throw out the whole Leviticus as unimportant here. Let's be a little bit more discriminating, shall we? So let's evaluate hermeneutically in terms of interpretation of the text. Uh, How do we evaluate whether this command is an important one or not? Well, first of all, it's part of a much broader Old Testament witness. It's hardly the only occurrence of a prohibition. Uh, Every single commandment of Scripture. Uh, that has anything to do with human sexuality presupposes a male-female prerequisite. Every legal piece of legal material, uh, every exhortation, every proverb, uh, every poetic image, uh, every simile that has anything to do with human sexuality always presupposes a male-female prerequisite. That's not accidental. The prescription is presented in Scripture as absolute. There are no exceptions given anywhere. You can incident, incidentally compare that to incest. You do find some of the patriarchs engaging in activity that's subsequently regarded as, a, as prohibited by Levitical law. Of course, the argument the rabbis can say is that, well, they came before the Levitical law. But then the Levitical law came and it closed those loopholes. And that's true. It came later and closed the loopholes. Uh, but you never had to close loopholes later with regard to the commandments about uh, homosexual practice, implicit already in the Genesis text, as we noted in Genesis 1-2. to It was always absolutely prohibited. That which suggests it's even more... to violate it is even more severe than a violation of incest, which, as we'll note in our third presentation, is analogically related. It's grouped with other relevant sex prescriptions that we still think are wrong today. Uh, for example, um, adultery, incest, and bestiality. In Leviticus 20, Leviticus 20 takes the sex laws in Leviticus 18, and it then reorders them according to priority of offense. The most severe offenses being listed first uh, in Leviticus 20, 10 to 16, and this is included in that list. Included in that list is the prohibition of adultery, the prohibition of bestiality, and the prohibition of the two worst forms of incest, sex with one's child or affine substitute, sex with one's parent or affine or step uh, substitute. Okay, so it's regarded as a supreme offense. By the way, the prohibition of uh, sex with a menstruating woman does not appear in the first tier in Leviticus 20. So that would be the one, if you're going to bracket one off as different from the rest, that would be it. What is the reason for the prescription? Well, it's implicit in the prescription itself, as oftentimes in Old Testament legislation. A male shall not be made a man's sexual counterpart, because he's not. Somebody say, well, purity language is used in Leviticus 18. Purity language is indeed used in Leviticus 18, but purity language often buttresses moral issues, especially with regard to sex. Even in our own day, when we talk about certain sexual offenses as being dirty, we don't mean that they're not really wrong. It's a way of adding an additional form of societal revulsion to conduct that is otherwise prohibited to reinforce the prohibition. They have to watch where the purity language is used and in what context. This is clearly a case in context of moral purity rather than ritual purity. Uh, And to make that point, let's segue over to another slide. Do the Levitical prohibitions refer to ritual or moral impurity? Okay. All the indicators I would argue uh, in the context suggest moral impurity. For example, they specifically refer to the forbidden sex acts as iniquity or sin, not just ritual uncleanness, according to Leviticus 18.25. Context does not permit absolution for the sexual offenses in Leviticus 18 merely through ritual acts. They do not treat the sexual offenses in chapters 18 and 20 as making the participants contagious to touch as many forms of ritual impurity. Okay, you you come into contact with a corpse, uh, you're ritually impure. Doesn't matter what your opinion is. Whether you intended to come into contact, whether it was advertent or inadvertent, it doesn't matter, you're ritually impure. That's not how moral impurity works. Moral impurity is not contagious. And the sex offenses in Leviticus 18 and 20 are generally not contagious to touch. In Leviticus 18 and 20, they do not penalize persons without willful intent. They expressly say, especially in Leviticus 20, Uh, their blood be upon them, which is a justification clause for those who willingly engage in the behavior. Whereas, regards moral impurity, uh, ritual impurity, rather, again, as we noted, it doesn't matter whether the action was inadvertent or advertent, intentional or not. An implicit rationale is given for the prohibition, as we've already noted. So it's not an irrational prohibition. And these prohibitions, prohibitions are applied not just to Jews in context of Leviticus 18, but also to resident aliens, which is picked up in early Jewish Noahide law in the first century and later, as binding even on Gentiles who don't become proselytes. Whereas ritual impurity law is not made so binding on Gentiles in the first century. So by every... Reasonable argument here about whether this is ritual or moral impurity. On every level, it's rated and categorized as an issue of moral impurity. What about cloth mixtures? People often say it's like cloth mixtures, right? You got polyester and another and cotton together, you shouldn't be wearing that. We don't pay attention to those laws anymore. Why should we be paying attention to this law in Leviticus? Well, again, you have to think analogically and you have to look. Here's the clue. What is a good analogy? A good analogy shares the most points of substantive correspondence with the thing to which it is compared. That's a good analogy. If it's got a lot of differences with the thing you're comparing it to, it's not really a good analogy. And that's the case here. Much closer analogs than cloth mixtures or sex with a menstruant are analogies to adultery, bestiality, and especially adult incest, as we'll see later. When we compare issues like cloth mixtures and sex with the menstruant, there's no comparison as regards the severity of the offense. The penalty for cloth mixtures is probably no more than the destruction of the cloth because we know from Deuteronomy, if you mix two kinds of seed, the penalty is not death sentence for the person who mixes the two kinds of seed. You just destroy the crop. And sexual with the menstruant, as we've already noted, is a second tier sexual offense in Leviticus 18, one that does not occur at capital sentencing unlike adultery, the worst forms of incest, and bestiality, and same-sex intercourse. There's also no comparison as regards the absoluteness of the prohibition, and the degree to which the prohibition is symbolic. For example, in cloth mixtures, the prohibition is not absolute. We know that because there are mixtures of linen and wool enjoined on some tabernacle cloths, on parts of the priestly wardrobe, and on the tassel worn by laity. So if we're so bad to mix clots, you should be have the dense sentence, which I already know is not the case. Uh, why is it actually enjoined to have such mixture in certain elements? The reason is because there's a symbolism to this mixture. It denotes a penetration, if you will, an intersecting between uh, the human and the divine realm which is thought in ancient Israelite society as being inappropriate in a non-sacral context, generally speaking. So priests, however, are appropriately in a sacral context. So there they have mixed cloth. The temple itself is a sacral context, therefore mixed cloth. The Lady are not usually in that kind of sacral context specifically. And yet, they're still reserved for God. So the tassel itself is allowed a mixture of cloth, just to remind them uh, that they also share in God's sacral quality. Not to the same extent as the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple, but still to some extent. And that becomes, as you know, more ratcheted up in the New Testament with the gift of the Holy Spirit. As far as sex with the menstruant goes, the only sexual offense in Leviticus 18 and 20 that elsewhere in Leviticus overlaps with permitted ritual impurities is sex with the menstruant in Leviticus 15. None of the others showing some range of views on this issue, equating it more with ritual impurity rather than with the other moral impurity categories. The main issue here seems to be just the interaction of fluids, but not the legitimacy of the sexual union, per se. Because it's a man and a woman, husband and wife getting together, that's legitimate. It's just the interaction of inappropriate fluids, the symbolism of blood going out indicating death with uh, semen going in, which is life. The mixture of those symbolically is thought to be inappropriate. And moreover, sex with a menstruant does not approach the degree of unnaturalness of incest. Man, male, sex, and bestiality. Since you can have this kind of intercourse, uh, sex with a menstruant inadvertently happen in the course of normal sexual activity. The onset of the menstrual cycle. You didn't know you're having sex. Okay. Well, okay. You don't get that when you get when you're doing incest, or you're doing uh, adultery, or you're doing bestiality, or male, male sex, which is always inappropriate in all contexts. So You see that. The poor and analogical character of sex with a menstruant, there's also no comparison as regards pervasive canonical witness. There's significantly more constricted Old Testament support uh, for some of these other things like cloth mixture and and sex with a menstruant, and it's not clearly carried over into the New Testament, whereas the issues of adultery, bestiality, man-male, intercourse, incest, clearly are. And finally, there's no comparison as regards the social scientific case for circumventing biblical prohibitions. The case against maintaining the prohibitions of cloth mixtures and sex with a menstruant is on a wholly different level uh, than it is with the case analogies of adultery and incest, bestiality, and so forth. The case for maintaining the prohibition of homosexual practice actually resembles at key points the case against adult consensual incest and polyamory, as we'll see later. So why, if you pick a more remote analog, like cloth mixtures, or sex with a menstruant, and you avoid the closer analogies, like sex with a close kin, or in the New Testament, polyamory, you're really not interested in analogical reasoning. Because if you're interested in analogical reasoning, you pick pick the closer analogs, those with more substantive correspondences with the thing being compared, rather than the remote analogs. When you pick the remote analogs over the closer analogs, it's because you are driven to do so by your ideological aims, rather than by appropriate logical reasoning. I never heard anyone say, Uh, look, uh, we've changed our view on some issues in the Old Testament. Let's allow incest now. What a a ridiculous argument. Why why would we never make it? Because people would recognize incest as of a wholly different order from these other things that have changed. And it's the same thing with the case against man-male intercourse. Now... I see I only have a few minutes left before we get to questions, which would give me the full 15 minutes to questions. So I'm just going to uh, do a quick whirlwind and suggest some things you could ask about if you're interested, although you have perfect freedom to do what you want, and uh, we'll see what happens. When I talk about Sodom, I usually put these circles up here. Uh, The argument that's usually made is Sodom doesn't really have anything to do with homosexual practice per se. It's about inhospitality. There isn't certainly an element about inhospitality that is mentioned in the Sodom text. That element is certainly there. How you treat visitors when you don't have hotels in ancient Israel, and you're dependent upon the hospitality of people within the city wall when you come within the city wall to be welcome into homes. There's certainly an element of that, but it's not to the exclusion of the issue of man-male intercourse. Let Let me give you an analogy here and see how you read this. Suppose I tell you a story about a man who has coercive sexual intercourse with his father. Do you think when I'm telling you such a story that the only form of incest that I'm indicting is a coercive form? No. I see some people shaking their heads and the rest of you I'm sure inwardly are shaking your head. You think that if I'm telling you a story about a man who rapes his father that I'm talking about a really bad case of rape. Not only rape, which is itself very bad, but a case of incestuous rape of the worst sort with one's own parent, which just ratchets up the offense to be a particularly severe offense, right? You don't think that because I've added the element of rape to the story that I'm only indicting the rape. You think rather I'm trying to tell you a story about a really bad act, almost unprecedented, unparalleled. It's the same thing with the Sodom text. The fact that the coercion is an element is not to the exclusion of the same-sex activity. To the contrary, It's intended as a kitchen sink story of depravity, where it involves not just the rape of visitors, no less, seeking shelter, but a demeaning of their integrity as male, treating them as though they were sexual counterparts to men, that is, as if they were not men, and thereby devaluing their maleness. And so dishonouring them. That's the form of inhospitality that this is taking. Now, if the men in that storyline had consented to a form of sexual intercourse with a single male knocking on the door and saying, "Could I, you know, I'd like—I've seen you in the city gate for a while, and I feel attracted to you, and I'd like to be in a committed relationship with you." If the storyline had followed that trajectory, then it had one of the because, you know, in Sodom, it's presented as angels visiting, uh, then the uh, visitor would have willingly consented to his own degradation and dishonoring. That's how the storyline would have changed. Not that the dishonoring or degradation would not still be part of a picture, but whether or not he would be a willing participant in his self-dishonoring. How do we know that? Because every element, every concentric circle of literary and historical context that we can bring to bear on the Sodom story makes this point. Other ancient Near Eastern evidence indicates that even when sexual activity is being, now there's porous elements here because we have some varying views in the ancient Near East, but generally, in the Mesopotamian context at least, uh, a man who willingly consents to man-male intercourse dishonors himself. If we look at other related texts, the Deuteronomistic history, which is a way of talking about the material from Joshua to 2 Kings, because it's heavily influenced by the Deuteronomic law in Deuteronomy, uh, has a series of texts called the Kadashim text, which is usually translated something like homosexual cult prostitutes, literally means the sacred ones. It refers to devotees of an androgynous female goddess who deliberately Uh, emasculate themselves, feminize their appearance, and sometimes further than that, sometimes as far as castration, sometimes not, and in a cultic context have sex with other men and do so willingly. And clearly, uh, the Deuteronomistic historian calls this a toavah, an abomination. Uh, By the way, the term toavah, I haven't talked much about it, Uh, talked about it already, uh, but uh, just to add, it just simply means, in the context, something abhorrent to God. And people used to say, well, Toavah abomination is just used for ritual impurity. People who say that obviously have not used a con- Hebrew concordance. Because if you just crack open a Hebrew concordance and you look up all the occurrences of Toavah, and you can see it laid out in about four or five pages of my first book where I talk about it, Jesus, elsewhere, in virtually every occurrence, I found one possible exception, that only possible, in, the, in, in terms of the view of the narrator. Uh, it all, With that one possible exception, everywhere else in all the other occurrences, it refers to forms of offense that we still regard as wrong today, and usually severely wrong. Most importantly, things like idolatry, uh, incest, um, child sacrifice, murder, things of that sort. Okay? So it doesn't mean something ritually impure. It just simply means something that God abhors or detests. And the story of the Levite at Gibeah, which actually draws on some of the actual phrases from the uh, Sodom text and clearly is related to it, can almost be looked at as the earliest commentary in the Sodom text. Uh, we can talk about that if there's questions about but that also implies, too, uh, that the event, given the fact that it's part of the Deuteronomistic history, where the narrator clearly regards even consensual forms of man-male intercourse to be an abomination, obviously then the writer wouldn't think only exploitative forms are being indicted in the parallel story of the Levite at Gibeah. You can look at Levitical laws we've already done, and again, the presupposition of every narrative, law, proverb, exhortation, metaphor, and poetry in the Old Testament about sexual issues always presupposes a male-female prerequisite. You can look at the history of the interpretation of the story, whether in Ezekiel 16, Jude 7, 2 Peter, Testament of Naphtali, two major first century Jewish writers, Josephus and Philo. If you have any questions about any of these texts, like the Ezekiel text or the Jude text, uh, uh, you you want to talk about that some more, we can do that in the question time. At every level of literary and historical context that you can approach, when you look at the Sodom text, it indicates that part of the indictment is the indictment of degrading the maleness of men in the city by treating them as if their maleness has no bearing on their identity. Okay? I'm going to leave it there. We could, we didn't say anything about David and Jonathan. We could also talk about that if you have questions. But this is your time to ask any questions about the Old Testament witness. I only ask that you limit it to that, because my talk tomorrow morning will be in the New Testament witness. And after that, we're going to talk about the, in the third talk about the use of analogies, about some scientific evidence stuff, and about use of uh, philosophical or nature arguments and hermeneutical principles generally. Okay, so just now about the Old Testament witness. What about David and Jonathan? Very good! You have read my mind. What <laughs> about David and Jonathan? Thank you. There are no plants in this audience. <laughs> I didn't put them up to that earlier. I'll have to do the favor for you later. Just uh, tell me what you want me to ask. Okay. The problem with the misuse of the David and Jonathan text, why it's misused, uh, and it's often sometimes treated as if this were an erotic relationship, is it confuses erotic language with non-erotic covenant kinship language. Okay? I'm going to give a couple of examples of that. I don't think we can do the whole thing because of time, but just a few examples. Compare, for example, at one point the text in 1 Samuel says, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Erotic, right? That's how it's sometimes read by homosexualist interpreters. However, Genesis 44 says that Jacob's soul is bound up with his son Benjamin's soul. And that's certainly not erotic. It's kinship language. By the way, covenant is kinship, covenant is the establishment of kinship across non bloodlines. Marriage is a form of covenant, adoption is a form of covenant. God becomes in covenant with Israel, uh, their kin in effect, obligated to redeem them in times of need as kin are. So covenant is kinship. Love your neighbor as yourself, is that erotic? But that's very similar to the language of Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But it's not all erotic. Compare it, too, with the language of covenant treaties. For example, you must love him as yourselves. addressed the vassals of the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. He's not talking about having sex. It's establishment of kinship across non bloodlines The reference to King Hiram of Tyre as David's lover has nothing to do with sex. Okay? Take another example. Jonathan delighted very much in David. Compare that, same verb. King Saul delighted is delighted with you, David and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law." Has nothing to do with sex. Has to do with kinship. Whoever delights in Joab is from 2 Samuel, and whoever is for David, let him follow after Joab, Joab, because God delights in David. Is God having sex with David? No. It's a special kinship relationship. When David had to flee from Saul, David and Jonathan had a farewell meeting in which David, quote, bowed three times to Jonathan and they kissed each other and wept with each other. Sexual. Note the political overtones of bowing. Only three out of 27 occurrences of the Hebrew verb to kiss have an erotic dimension in the Old Testament. Three out of 27. Why don't we look at the 24 out of 27 that have no erotic overtone? Most refer to kissing between a father and son or between brothers. In other words, it's kinship language. It's not erotic language, it's kinship language. Saul's response to Jonathan, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, David, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? Hey, how about that? What is he doing here? Saul is charging Jonathan with bringing shame on the mother who bore him by acquiescing to David's claim on Solomon's throne. In fact, he's saying, being a man, be a man, you're the one that's supposed to inherit the throne. Instead, you're giving it up to David. And that sense is bringing a shame on his mother. But it's not implying that they're having sex with each other. It's the supplanting of Jonathan with David as the heir to the throne. Not charging David with adop- uh, Jonathan with adopting a female role in a homosexual relationship. And when David learns of the debts of Saul and Jonathan, he states, You were very dear to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. Hebrew verb we're very dear to is used in a sexual sense in the Old Testament in only two out of 26 occurrences. And as a related form, is used just three verses later, three verses earlier, when David refers to Saul as lovely, but has nothing to do with sex. Jonathan's giving up his place as a royal heir and risking his life for David surpassed anything David had ever known from a committed erotic relationship from a woman. That's all he's saying. Proverbs 18 says there is a lover, we often render friend, who sticks closer than a brother. But that means somebody even dearer than kin. The narrator's willingness to speak of David's vigorous heterosexual life puts in stark relief. The narrator's complete silence about any sexual activity between David and Jonathan. This is not about sex, but about kinship. And we can do other things. I'm just going to put that up, memorize that, and we have another question.
1: Uh, Rob, this is from Arthur Goldberg. <laughs> Can you comment on Leviticus 18.3 with regard to lesbianism and the Sifra? I'm uh, not sure which verse that is. Arthur 18.3 uh, basically is the provision where uh, it says you should not follow the ways of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. The Sifra, which is the oral tradition coming down, basically says that what are the ways of the Egyptians and the Canaanites and they say a man shall not, Hebrew word no set a man and a woman shall not set a woman. That's right. And the right. Hebrew word noseh, depending upon how one interprets it, either is taking in a physical sense or marry, which, right. by the way, is a very nice provision of saying that the uh, Torah, the Old Testament, basically for- forbids same-sex marriage way back when. That's right. And more importantly, the lesbianism, because a lot of people, you, you spent most of the time, I understand, you did time, going through the uh, 1822 provision, but lesbianism is also specifically prohibited in the Old Testament through the cipher interpretation of 183. Yeah, I, would say, I just think it's important for people to know that.
0: Yeah, I would say implicitly that's true, and we will mention some rabbinic texts tomorrow when talking about the New Testament, which do specifically ref- forbid men marrying males and women marrying women. So if they were only interested in forbidding exploitative forms of homosexual practice, why are they forbidding marriage, which by its very nature implies something non-exploitative, at least as the intent? Briefly, why why, uh, women having sex with women is not specifically forbidden in ancient Israel is suggested by the larger context in the ancient Near East, where also we find only one Uh, I think, one extent prohibition of forbidding lesbianism. In other words, it's hardly ever mentioned. Why? Because women's sexual lives are tightly regulated in the ancient Near East, and it simply never emerges as a possibility. It does emerge as a possibility in ancient Greek, and especially as you move into the first century, where you have women's liberation movements going on, some uh, lesbianism goes on the rise. And there, you have both within Judaism, and also even within, interestingly interestingly enough, in the Greco-Roman milieu forbidding lesbianism, even homosexual males in the Greco Roman milieu forbid lesbianism. Uh, the, with one or two possible exceptions, we don't know of males in the Greco Roman milieu who approve of lesbianism. Nobody does. So to argue that there could have been acceptance of lesbianism, uh, but not of man male intercourse, gets it all backwards. Actually, the lesbianism is regarded as worse, and we can talk more about that tomorrow, but we should move on to another question. I, I have a question you were talking about the undifferentiated Adam and the Mm -hmm. differentiated ish?
1: And so I don't know, I I don't understand what that means, if it means spiritual or anatomical, what you mean by undifferentiated. And then that gets me to the main part, which is what does it mean to have a male nature? We get into our contemporary culture, you know, that men who are more sensitive or, you know, not so athletic and that might be some predisposition temperamentally and so i think there's a problem that we don't define for, in our culture what it means to be male
0: right, well uh, the i i don't know the text doesn't tell us so I, I i don't wish to speculate that much on it either i think the text just leaves it open to say something happens once there is an extraction from the adam that's what the text does tell us that's why the taking from is repeated four times That's why ish is not used until after the extraction takes place. Now you can really talk in a meaningful way about a man because there's a counterpart, a woman. Now, what does that mean for what happens before? I just use the ambiguous term, (laughs) "undifferentiated" and don't go into anything beyond that because the text doesn't, I don't think the text really wants us to think about it because obviously in ancient Israel they don't want to promote androgyny either. Uh, because androgyny doesn't exist in the created order. Although there are some views in the ancient world about thinking of recreation as moving towards androgyny. Uh, and even Jesus talks about uh, neither a man is, a woman is not given to marriage, nor a man marry in heaven, but are like the angels. So, but these are elements that take place in recreation. I don't think sexual, se- sexual activity takes place in the new creation. That's the implication of Jesus' remark. And then you think, oh, drats, because I really like sex. So I'd really like that to carry on in the new creation. But when the church fathers look at that, this is what they say, that being in God's immediate presence will make you forget about sex. Because whatever exhilaration you experience from sex, and certainly it can be very great for us in this, this side of the eschaton, but in the kingdom of God to come, it will pale by comparison with, with the ecstasy of being in God's immediate presence. So it's, it's, like, it's like why, you know, you don't have the sun in, in, in Revelation, the book of Revelation. Why? Because God is in the temple. Well, what more do you need with the sun? What a pale light that would be. You know, that'd be like a 10-watt light bulb compared to, I don't know, what they use in the baseball stadiums living up. I mean, it's just, you know, what's the point? Uh, something much better has replaced it. Now, what, what is a man and what is a woman? I, you know, it's hard to define, but I know it when I see it. I've never mistaken it. It's amazing. Even those who, who call themselves homosexual, category six homosexuals, are able to identify the distinction between a gender nonconforming person of the other sex and a person of the same sex. And they want the person of the same sex. And they're not happy with the gender nonconforming person of the other sex, even though extreme gender nonconforming. Why? Because they know, even apart from the gender nonconformity, that person still remains that other sex. And what they may perceive, and here's where, you know, you've got to be sensitive to this because I think behind that dynamic is something important to note, and that is there's a perception in the self that there's something lacking in my identity as male, if male, or female, if female. And there should be no mockery of that. There should be no making fun of that. That That's a very serious point to be made. And we'll talk about that more in the third talk, but I simply want to say about that at this time that we are not in need of additional structural supplementation to our gender. I can't become more male by merging with another male. I am already fully male. But we may be in need of structural affirmation, not supplementation, but affirmation of our maleness and femaleness. It's just that if we engage in sexual activity with the same sex, we just regularize the misperception that we're not fully male or not fully female by treating ourselves as half of the sex that we actually are whole. So it actually creates a problem. So what's, what's part of a healthy way of working in the midst of same-sex attractions? We won't necessarily rid you of same-sex attractions, but to manage them, close, intimate relationships with members of the same sex but non-erotic. That's what's needed. The structural affirmation of one's identity as male if male or female if female. And that's sort of an undercurrent of the Genesis 1-2 text that we talked about. And we'll stop there, I guess, and there'll be talk on New Testament tomorrow and one on everything else I didn't cover in the third talk.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Rob.